This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. In 2008, a podcast was created with one goal. To bring Bat fans around the world news related to movies, comics, video games, television, merchandise, and so much more. And now, the Batman Universe Podcast has returned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the TBU Podcast. I'm Dustin. BJ and Scott are both with me today, and today we are talking all about the special features found on the Batman home video release. Um, Just when you thought we might be done talking about the Batman, well, that's certainly never going to be the case, because there's always something to talk about. And uh, if you have been following along with news in general, you know that the home video release just happened uh, last week. And when it did happen, the not there was a there was a couple of things. One, if you buy a digital copy, generally there are the availability to there is the availability to watch the special features. Sometimes there's limitations on what you can see and what you can't see when it comes to the special features. But if you buy the actual Blu-ray version, which conveniently we have a link in the description if you are so inclined to purchase it, um, but there is a number of special features. The actual disc itself says over two hours of special features on the Blu-ray, and it lists off some of the specific ones. We're going to talk all about all of the different special features that were actually included on the release. There's... Some that we've already discussed, like uh, the Joker deleted scene, and then there's a bunch of other stuff that gives us more insight as to the mind of Matt Reeves when he was creating it, and a lot of how things came to be, how the Batmobile became what it was, how the wingsuit sequence existed the way it did, and where the thought process behind that was, and there's a lot of insight um, from a lot of the crew and some of the cast that, that were involved in the, in the project. Now, I will say, uh, as a upfront forewarning, I have not seen... I used to watch special features, like, religiously uh, when films came out probably a decade ago when I had a lot more time on my hands. And I used to watch all kinds of special features for every... Not, not just, like, you know, a Batman movie because I'm a huge Bat fan, but also... A variety of other action movies that I really enjoyed and things like that. And over the years, you get married, you have kids, and you just don't actually find the time to be able to watch hours of special features on top of the hours of movie that you actually have to watch. So it was kind of a treat to go back and watch special features for a movie that I really enjoyed. Um, and I'm thinking maybe in the future we might dive into some of the other special features for some of the other films over the years because. 
every film that has released, even as far back as like 1989 Batman, there are special features attached to the home video releases. Some have more than others. Obviously, more recent ones have more content, but there's a lot of content in general. So we're going to dive into all of this. Scott's going to take the lead on here because he did a great job of taking a bunch of notes and uh, talking points and things like that. And then BJ and myself will chime in with the various uh, with various comments related to the individual um, special feature segments that, uh, that were part of it. So, Scott, take it away. Yeah. So, you know, I guess the way I have this organized, we'll go through the features, you know, as they're ordered on the discs. Um, so, and there's 11 sections. You know, in the last section is the deleted scenes, but the first one is called Looking for Vengeance. And that's, you know, pretty much about, you know, Bruce, you know, or Batman and and what they were thinking in terms of, like, how this character would act and feel and, you know, what was going on there with Batman. You know, and the main takeaway I took away from this section was, you know, they talk about a little bit his relationship with Alfred and how, you know, Bruce's fighting style is partially born from Alfred, you know, who trained him, but it's also something that, you know, as Matt Reeves used, uh, the words he used were cobbled together, you know, to be emblematic of a guy who's, you know, out looking for vengeance, which is kind of how it ties into the title of the section, you know, and that there is no one clear style, but more so this kind of, you know, style that encompasses rage, you know, and anger and, you know, trying to avenge his parents. One of the things that I took away from this segment was there was a sequence that they originally had planned for the film where uh, they were going to focus more on the fighting between Alfred and and Bruce and the training that they go through. And he specifically, Matt Reeves specifically said that they had a plan for when Bruce came back from being out all night, they were going to show him sparring with Alfred on a regular basis to show that that's how he trained and that's how he kept up with you know his his moves, sets, and things like that. And they ended up cutting it, which it makes sense in the larger scheme of things because there was like this kind of fracture between Alfred and and Bruce in the film that kind of gets mended after the uh, the accident in Wayne Tower and. That was kind of interesting because while it's hinted at that obviously when when Alfred's in the hospital bed and he's talking to Bruce, he's, he says, you know, I was able to I was able to teach you how to fight, but that wasn't what you needed. You needed a father, and you know that's that's not what I was. And that it's interesting because you don't see a lot of. Ver- I mean, there's plenty of versions to compare Alfred to the comics. But when you look at the other incarnations of Alfred, when it comes to the films, there's very, very different versions. I mean, Michael Caine as amazing as an actor as he is and as amazing as his portrayal of Alfred in the dark Knight trilogy is, he was more of that father figure. He was much, much less of a, I'm here to help you train to, you know, get you to be where you want to be kind of situation. He was that father figure. That's who he was. That's why we saw him crying, you know, when when he thought that Bruce was dead and all of that. Like that's that was the version of Alfred that we saw there. And it's it's this is going to come up a bunch of different times during a lot of these special features, but it's it's amazing how 
many different incarnations of some some specific version of a character or the Batmobile or the Batsuit or the gadgets. There's, it's amazing how many different versions we've seen of some of these things. You know, Michael Gao, who played Alfred in the first four Batman films, he was just kind of there. He was there as like, in some ways, to lighten the mood when when Batman was on screen and he was in the Batcave and things like that because everything was serious with Batman. So you need something to lighten that up. And then in later films, his role was kind of reduced and you had more of a... You know, Robin and then Batgirl kind of filling that gap for Alfred later on. But when it comes to, you know, the the different versions of Alfred, it's it's unique to see how very different that can be. And then that obviously that translates to the other things as well. For sure. One thing that a couple things I took from that um, of the, on the Blu-ray was, um, like you said, uh, um, his fighting styles cobbled together from different different things and like um Batman like isn't as like untouchable as like the Ben Affleck version was. This Batman was taking some damage. He's not all knees and elbows like the uh, Christian Bale one was, or even like like uh, Michael Keaton was just kind of running up and punching people. He wasn't like a technician or anything. And this one, like Bruce was taking a lot of damage. And even Pattinson said how um, he tries to recreate the night like his parents were murdered. Like every night he goes out like in his mind like when he's beating like punching down a criminal like he's imagining that it's whoever killed his parents if it's jill chill in this version whoever it was he's kind of just driven by that rage all the time yeah no it's it's interesting and it's it's kind of interesting too because um it flows into the next section you know which is the batman you know genesis section where you know they they talk about you know robert pattinson in the role a little bit more but also you know big chunk of that too was um in how matt reeves wanted to find something to connect with and you know obviously where this film was born out of he wanted something that was you know obviously a franchise film but something born out of like his love of the character and comics and you know something personal and deep for him you know and um i had a couple things i cued in on this point but the thing I really took, I think the biggest takeaway I had in this section was, you know, there's a point where like Matt Reeves is talking about how he went back to the comics and he started with 1939, the chemical syndicate and went through and he had a little notebook um, of things that he connected with, you know, personally with the character when he was trying to figure out what story and what, you know, film he wanted to tell. Um, and, you know, in doing that in journaling, you know, while he was going through, trying to figure out this movie, it gave him the idea to also, you know, create Batman's journal and add that as an element to the character. So you have this detective who's, you know, so invested and so into it that he's also has his little, you know, notebook that he writes in like every night. I feel like um, a lot of throughout the special features, like um, this movie, like spawned maybe a lot of comic book, uh, comic book fans like Jeffrey, Wright. He's referencing um, comics throughout like, parts of the special features paul dano references hush at one point um somewhere like matt reeves is a big comic book fan i'm sure pattinson was reading it feels like like a lot of these guys were they had uh, comic books all over set and that's honestly really great to hear that that was the case because there was a lot of talk about batman year one in various different segments that uh, were on the special features uh, there was a lot of talk about Year One and Frank Miller's version of Catwoman during the Catwoman segment. But every single person 
who is a major player, whether it be the main actors or whether it be um, the producers, uh, obviously Matt Reeves, who is a producer, the writer and director, they're all, t- and Dylan Clark, Clark, the other producer, they were all talking about comics as if it was something that greatly influenced them. Yeah, and, you know, I like, too, that, like, when they're all talking about it, like, they're all, like, pulling these themes or things that, you know, they resonated with and, you know, you know, it kind of helped foster this idea that, you know, each character has their own theme. You know, we've talked about this a lot in the art of the Batman book when we did our review on that. But um, in the looking for justice section, you know, which is the next one, which goes into more of like what you were talking about, BJ, with Paul Dano. Um, a lot of the things he was saying, you know, if Batman is vengeance, you know, what does Riddler represent? You know, and so Paul Dano's, you know, idea in characterization of the Riddler, you know, revolved around the word justice, you know, and 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 in that vein, you know, this section kind of explores how both, you know, Riddler and Batman are guided, you know, by their emotional trauma stemming from childhood, some in a ways that it's kind of shared but also different and unique, you know, and, and serves as a plot point or a subpoint subplot to the film. Well, one of the things that I thought was great about this section, uh, specifically talking about looking for justice and focusing on the Riddler was the, the connection that while it is evident in the film about how Riddler is viewing himself as, is as if he is a vigilante as well. And he was almost inspired by Batman to become what he is. There's a level of like, when it's being explained to you as, as openly as it is within this segment. And then you, they're showing you the sequences in the film that kind of like play into what they're trying to do. You see it almost in a new light. Like obviously I knew as I was watching the film that Riddler was believing he was doing something good. It's evident in his dialogue. But that sequence where he's talking to uh, Batman in Arkham, it gives a completely different light. Because while I was watching, I was getting so set on the idea of him saying Bruce Wayne and him potentially knowing who Batman was underneath the cowl. I was so highly focused on that specific aspect that I completely negated the fact that he truly believed he was just like Bruce Wayne, but he was forgotten while everybody else, you know, cared about what happened to Bruce Wayne because Bruce's parents were killed. It didn't matter what happened to him and the other orphans at the orphanage who were promised these great things because that wasn't going to happen anymore. And it was, there's like this amazing parallel between the two characters that really hasn't been there, at least for their childhood aspects. But then it kind of lends into the idea that he really does believe he's doing good. It just so happens that it's in a very sadistic and creepy way. Uh, that part I bumped into how, um, they're, how they're similar, how they're similar. That's like, um, always kind of hear like joker and batman are like two sides of the same coin or even like two-face or raz al ghul you never really hear them compared to the riddler and that this movie made that kind of, that comparison happen like that would never happen in batman forever or anything like that so that really bumped in that i uh really found awesome and even like paul dano in the special features when they're interviewing him like he's giving out creepy vibes just sitting there as himself he's sitting in that little apartment the riddler apartment he's kind of 
soft spoken. I was like, is this guy is he method acting or what's he doing? I I really like that because I thought like you know like you're saying like he's he's a little eerie and kind of unsettling, but uh-huh. also like I thought he was kind of like very profound and eloquent in the way he was speaking. Um, you know, I highlighted a quote that he when they're on well, one of the many occasions they're interviewing him, but the thing he, you know, says he goes, the thing that's so great about Batman historically, culturally, and in this film is that space in between which is where we really all live, that's so potent, powerful, and true. And he says, I think it's about having heroes and having villains and exploring the space in between. And, you know, my takeaway of that and like what he was speaking to is this idea that like, you know, you have these themes and these characters are based around these themes, but you know, the world in which they inhabit is all very much kind of like a murky gray, you know, and it's, it's, you know, they're both polar opposites, but at the same time, like what we're really getting at is that weird middle ground, you know, that we're kind of trying to figure out and resolve ourselves with. Yeah. And the really interesting thing about that is some of the best villains are ones that you could root for. I mean, to a degree, I mean, you could sit here and say that the Riddler is trying to, you know, clean up corruption. He's doing it in a way that is not going to make a lot of people happy about it. But at the same time, I think that there is a level of people. I mean, at the end of the film, he's got all these followers who have decided he's he's done what he's done. And it's just the beginning. So they're going to take over control and they're going to, you know, enact underneath what his guidance is for the attack at the end of the film um, at the uh, Madison Square Garden like place but or Gotham Gardens but I think that it's interesting because the Riddler a lot of times is portrayed as just this like intelligence counterpart to Batman it's just he's all about just proving that he's smarter than Batman and that's what he's so concerned with it's not about the fact that he potentially is trying to, you know, get justice as, as the uh, segment is called looking for justice. It's not like he's doing that. It's there's a, there's a couple of small incarnations within comics. Specifically, there was a run uh, with Paul Dini there where he wrote the Riddler and Riddler was a detective. He was reformed. He was not, uh, you know, bad anymore. And he was being hired as a private detective to solve crimes. And people would come to him and just basically pay him to solve crimes. And he was convinced that this was the best thing he could do. And that version of Riddler was great. I liked that version of Riddler because it was different than just, ah, I need to outsmart Batman constantly. And the thing is like in the large scheme of things, that's what this Riddler was. He was he was a detective in the sense of he found out something. He figured out all these different connections to the corruption that was in within within Gotham, and he was basically trying to make it better. But he was inspired by Batman to be able to do what he was doing. Um, was it the right way? That's you know, like I'm not going to say yes, but I'm sure there are some people who could say, yeah, that's arguably the right way to go about doing stuff. And it's it was it's very interesting just to see how different this version of the Riddler is compared to past versions of the Riddler. Yeah, definitely. Um- what did you guys think of the becoming Catwoman section? I actually took quite a few notes on here, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought first. I liked it. It was um it really delved into um how she 
she's not Catwoman yet, but she's slowly, slowly getting there. I think I don't know if it was in that part, but at one point Reeve says how um like our four main characters, Batman, Cat uh, Selena, Riddler and Penguin were all kind of shaped by their childhood and like their past traumas. And like you can definitely see that with Selena, her whole she wants to get revenge on Falcone, that's her father, she wants what's hers. She had to live poor growing up and she kind of wants what she feels she deserves. And you can see how that's slowly getting there. Um, and maybe by the next film, she'll find she'll be, I assume she'll be full fledged Catwoman. The one thing that I got out of this one more than anything was uh, there was a point in this one where they were talking about how this is kind of the birth of the character. And I think it was this, I, I think it was in this one. I can't be sure because it kind of all mold together once you watch a bunch of them. But Reeves was saying that like, he didn't want to do an origin story for Batman. He wanted to do, you know, he wanted to create a story that Batman already existed. But in a lot of ways, superhero films in general kind of have an origin story for the villains in a f- single film. And he said, if this was the f- this was not a film for the origin of Batman, it was in fact an origin story for Catwoman because you're starting to see her becoming the Catwoman that we all know. And it merely makes me think that Reeves has every intention of including a lot of these characters in future films and going outside the box of a typical superhero film. And I and I think we talked about this before when we were talking about the film, but like Catwoman at the end of the film, it leaves it open for her to return. Obviously, the return of the Riddler is entirely possible. Penguin is definitely obviously going to be coming back. And I think that it's going to be a step outside of the normal versions of superhero films where by the end of the film the villain's taken down and you don't see the villain ever again there's occasionally every once in a while something where the villain remerge you know emerges comes back and and is another is a new threat somehow because they've teamed up with somebody else or something like that but i truly believe that what reeves is doing is he's really creating an expansive universe that he can come back to and he can you know, if he doesn't want to have Catwoman play as large of a role because Falcone's no longer in the film and things like that, she could still play a role, but she doesn't have to play as big of a role. I think it would be a, a misstep because I think the chemistry between them, uh, which is another thing in this one, they, they focused on the chemistry test, which Reeves has talked about a lot. And that was in a lot of interviews going up to or leading up to the film about Reeves talking about how when uh, Robert Penson first met um, Zoe Kravitz and they kind of worked together not first met because they were friends outside of uh, th- this film uh, prior to getting both cast but they they met up they did a chemistry test and the chemistry test was like kind of what sealed the deal for both of them to land the roles as uh, Batman and Catwoman respectively and it was cool to actually see that footage. This isn't the only one that it was shown in, but a lot of her side of the chemistry test was shown in this more so than some of the other ones. So that's the really the stuff that really stuck out to me in this this segment. Yeah, and actually, I just checked my notes. Um, I did note the birth of a Catwoman, you know, thing that Reeves was talking about, and there was a point where he said, um, you know, in his mind, it was. Um, on the roof or or where the the bat signal is when catwoman pushes kenzie off the roof you know that's um the birth of the catwoman that they believe i think actually zoe kravitz mentioned that in the interview you know in the way in the way she worded it was you know 
that's supposed to signify Batman went one way, you know, and she went another way. And that's kind of the spiritual, um, you know, realization of the character. But in this section, I think the thing I thought was really fascinating was, you know, the idea of Selena's wigs, um, you know, and, 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 you know, Reeves was kind of particular. He wanted the first, you know, wig to look realistic, you know? So, you know, the idea being when Bruce follows her home after seeing her at the iceberg lounge, you know, her removal of the wig, you know, informs the audience, you know, subtly that she is a mysterious character because, you know, Bruce is surprised. And then we too, you know, on our first viewing would be surprised too, that that is not her actual hair. It's, it's something much closer to year one, you know, and then throughout the rest of it, she has different wig changes that also, you know, constantly change how she looks and, you know, add to the subterfuge, subterfuge and evasiveness of her character. I like too how um, her whip wasn't an actual whip. It was like, what did it, it was like a motorcycle chain or something like that? Or like, yeah, it was an actual whip. Yeah. I liked how that, I liked that aspect of the character. Yeah, it was cool. Um, the next, next section was all about the Batmobile titled the Batmobile. Um, you know, you got a lot of uh, a good look under, you know, what's under the hood, you know, and how it operates, you know, top down. And then, you know, the mention that they built four vehicles, you know, for the film, a Ram car, a lightweight car for jumping, um, a car to be used for rigging and filming. And then what they called the hero car, which was electric, that was meant for quiet performances. So it can move around without, you know, making any noise. Yeah. The one thing that uh, was great about this was they were, they really went in depth about how exactly the car was built and how it was formed, and it, it is a complete custom car. Um, there was a point where he was like, a lot of people always ask about what, what, where the engine come from, because that's what everybody always asks about. You know, famous cars is like, where's the engine come from when you're you're custom building a car? And he said, this engine is custom to this. There's this is not an engine that you would ever find in another vehicle. They were talking about how not only did they use parts from you know, existing parts and things like that. But a lot of the stuff was actually specifically custom built specifically for this vehicle. They were actually metal printing, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh, basically like 3D printing, but with metal. And they were able to actually create some of the aspects of the engine to make it work for what they wanted to. It was also interesting that they talked about how the front had louvers on it originally, and they planned on using them. And then as production moved on, they realized it really wasn't necessary. So they just had like that glow at the front of the car. That by itself made the car a little bit more uh, menacing to a degree. As time has gone on, I've um, really, I think when I first saw the picture of the car, I was like, oh, it's just kind of a, nothing really special about it. But as reading the art of the Batman, watching this, I've, that car's kind of grown on me. Yeah, it, it is really cool. I actually, I'm not a car person, but watching them, you know, kind of break it down and talk about all the tech and engineering that went into making all their cars is really cool. Um you know, and then the next section was the anatomy of the car chase, you know, which, you know, it's pretty interesting to see how that was filmed. You know, a couple of things I noted on, they had over 100 vehicles driving around, you know, a half mile set, you know, to make the scene, you know, and Reeves really wanted a torrential rain sequence, you know, so as the cars pick up the pace, you'd have hydroplaning, you know, and then 
you know, since I really like the kind of nuts and bolts of filmmaking, the camera, the, what they use was something called a rotary, which was like seven cameras stuck together. So, you know, when they're driving around, they could film everything from all sides. That was really cool because it, the technology that they ended up using seemed very similar to something that I remember seeing on some special feature or something, some promotional clip or featurette or something like that for The Mandalorian, where The Mandalorian, they were filming a lot of the exterior stuff out away from the set, and then they would film more in-depth things like some of the desert scenes and things like that with the actors on in this like closed set with these giant LED screens. And the LED screens that were projecting the stuff that they were filming with the rotary was the stuff that allows them to be able to do these amazing shots that are close up with the correct lighting of what's happening outside by using these giant screens to project the explosions or the flashes of light from the street lamps and things like that. That was really cool. One of the things that stuck out to me which you've got in your notes as well is uh, is that penguins driving Maserati. I didn't have I didn't have any idea he was driving a Maserati in the film itself. But more even more specifically was it was a purple Maserati, which you would never even know because it's just so dark in the film. It's impossible to see the actual color of the paint of the car. I like watching all these special features on movies because it does kind of blow my mind, like how all this stuff is put together. Like they're when that little rehearsal one where they're, it's in daylight and there are all these cars whipping around and you see one clip of um, there's like a little car like on top of a car that can control the little car. Like that stuff kind of blows my mind. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's really intense, you know, and it's the other flip side of that they had for another sequence they broke down was the wingsuit jump, which, you know, I thought it was interesting because, you know, I never, I didn't, I guess while watching it, it was never anything I really considered how they put that together, you know, but um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, for them, one of the longest processes, you know, to figure out for this movie was like, first off, how to get the wingsuit to deploy from the bat suit and make it look like good on film. <laughs> you know, that it was just like, it took so much engineering just to get that scene where he like suits up. You know, and then obviously, like, the rest of the sequence, you know, when he's flying is kind of a, you know, ha- a edit of, like, movie magic, I guess you would say, with um, drone footage that they flew around Chicago, which I thought was really cool. And what was really cool was that they said that the drone footage they filmed at LaSalle Street, which happens to be the same street that they used in The Dark Knight for the scene where the semi-flips um, that was the exact same street that they used for the Dark Knight, and it actually, to a degree, it's not the exact same, exact same spot. I mean, it's not just like a little street; it's a long street, so there's plenty of different spots you could go. But that was kind of cool. I thought it was really, it was amazing how much detail they went into about trying to figure out how to make it as possible in real life, like as as grounded as possible, so that it could actually be real. And the fact that like. I did think it was a really cool sequence in the film where like he kind of like pulls this thing and then it turns into like an airbag that goes around him to become the wingsuit. I thought that was kind of cool, but I didn't really think about, I don't know, is this real? I I wasn't even imagining it could be real. And at least from the way it's explained in this segment, they tried to make it as as real as possible. So while it may have little elements that are suspending reality, there is a lot of 
time and effort that went into trying to make this seem as if it could be real as possible if it's it, as even if it isn't and just to piggyback on that like um that kind of makes me laugh like when they're saying how real it is and how grounded it is but that scene ends with Batman kind of crashing off a bus and rolling about 50 feet and then ending up and walking off and i'm like i'll, I'll go with it because i like every of everything else yeah, it just kind of like ends in a joke, you know, which yeah. is fun. But it was pretty crazy just how much work went into that. Um, the biggest section on the special features is a little like documentary, I guess you could say, because it's almost an hour long, um, called Vengeance in the Making, which incorporates a lot of the standalone, you know, bits from the standalone pieces we've already been talking about and ones we are yet to talk about. But also... You know, what was really cool about this was it took you through, you know, the shoot from like conception, you know, all the way through filming month by month. And it starts in January 2020 and it goes through March 2021, you know, and obviously the pandemic hit and they were shut down for six months, you know. So you kind of see what I thought was like the biggest takeaway I took from this is it's interesting to see what happens to like a movie production when something like the pandemic hits and how they have to like. They've prepared to do a shoot in a set amount of months and they have everything figured out, but now they have to refigure out how they're going to do things, you know, to socially distance their cast and crew and, you know, complete the movie, but in a way totally different than, you know, how they originally intended to. And it's amazing because a lot of the earlier stuff that I watched prior to this one was they were talking about the initial casting that was like uh, late middle of to late 2019 when they were casting and they were trying to figure out exactly who's going to play Catwoman, who's going to play Batman. And you hear like how they were getting involved. And then uh, there was a point, I think during the Catwoman one where Zoe Kravitz was talking about how she, you know, they were training at length for a long period of time and then things changed because of COVID. And then they had to kind of, figure out how to still train and still keep into what they were supposed to be doing, even though they couldn't be on set. And uh, in the Catwoman one, there was, they were talking about how like the stunt uh, coordinators were actually filming video showing moves to practice themselves because they were all being socially distanced. And this was just interesting because there was a lot of stuff that, kind of shows that aspect like you were saying scott like it's crazy to see how something like this that originally should have you know took a short amount of time or to a degree a longer amount of time but like it should have took a set amount of time and then they got extended for such a longer period of time like originally this film was meant to come out almost nine months earlier than it actually ended up coming out and while the film it's obviously was was delayed for a total of six months because of their the filming at least was delayed for six months it still was ended up being delayed even further because of you know just other things that had come up it's just interesting to see how that all landed out do wish that um I really don't see a lot of like uh, documentaries like this on special features. I really feel like that should be on like every special feature. I remember it was on Last Jedi. They had that one. I watched that one, but I'd love to see one for like Avengers or Endgame or any Batman movie. But I like the part when um, when they came back from uh, uh, from COVID and um, Matt Reeves said he wore his mask. 
And his, uh, the crew, like the cast, never saw his full face. And John Turturro kind of called him Batman. Like, he was their Batman. He was in a mask the whole time. He was, like, their hero to look up to. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was that was funny, too. And I think, you know, there's a lot going on in here. But I think one of the things I really um, kind of got, real, I got, like, nerdy excited at, too, was, you know, as they're going through the characters and, you know talking to the cast about you know who they're playing and how their feelings about their characters when they get to colin farrell um he mentioned you know part of the inspiration for how to portray penguin you know like the makeup kind of really helped inform him how he wanted to act and you know matt reeves also saw penguin as a character like scarface you know and when i first saw the film i kind of thought that too and i thought you know in my head i thought like the original scarface not the remake with al pacino but the Howard Hawks one that was based, you know, loosely off of Al Capone. Um, but Colin Farrell mentioned that he checked out the Arkham series for Penguins. Yes. That's like me. Picture really Colin Farrell playing, playing Arkham City all night long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the next section we had in here was something called Unpacking the Icon, which is... um. I guess I would say is the very uh, tech heavy um, segment, you know, about like the bat suit and utility belt, you know, Riddler's apartment and his uh, his outfit, Riddler's journal, you know, and then, you know, also more on Catwoman and Penguin, you know, particularly from like costuming, you know, perspectives. Yeah, that poor, there's one, one thing I, that stuck out to me was um, they said that one person wrote out all of Riddler's journals, hand wrote them. I was that poor person. They, deserve the biggest raise because i can't believe someone wrote all that and no one ever saw like we never we never read any of those they should release it give it its own volume or sell it independently as a book um and then we have uh the last section before the deleted scenes is called a transformation the penguin and you know, it was. I thought it was interesting because both of the guys that helped um, come up with the design and prosthetics for the penguin were both named Mike. So on my notes, I have them listed as two Mikes. Um, but I did find it interesting too that one of them was mentored by uh, one of the um, design and makeup people from The Godfather. You know, and and in that note, I like that. You know, Matt Reeves had the thought to make Penguin both, um, as he puts it, his words, pathetic and sympathetic you know and he said he was referencing fredo from the godfather so i thought that was really cool and 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 that kind of characterization you know for like this mobster i i really appreciate because it kind of makes him you know more rounded in a way that you don't see too often with the penguin you know in any sort of like live action media there was two things that stuck out to me in this section the first one was the the absolute effort that went into creating the prosthetics is insane. I, I mean, I know that there are there are there's extensive prosthetics for certain characters within film history that are amazing, but like the fact that they took Colin Farrell and they turned him into somebody that was completely unrecognizable is is insane. I remember when they first had there was some like leaked spy pics that came from the set. And they were say they were showing these pictures and saying, "Oh, that's Colin Farrell." And I kept looking at it, going, "That's that is not Colin Farrell." I don't I don't know how everybody's getting this mix, mixed up, but it, he truly was just unrecognizable. Uh, the other really cool little thing was that uh, when the um, the 
co- or the prosthetic designers when they were talking about it, they said that they specifically created the silhouette of his face to mimic a beak. So that way when he was talking, he would have a look like a beak. And I thought that was really cool because it's not something that you're going to immediately pick up on, but it's this like little subtle thing that you can put in. They also said his eyebrows were purposely done to mimic penguins. And I thought that was really kind of cool how they had like these little things that they put in there to kind of connect to that motif of being penguin, but not, you know, be as like, you know, up in your face. Those, um, I think one of the names is Mike Marino. I, I remember to write that down. That guy, he's got to be, he's got to win like an Oscar for makeup design or whatever it is. Cause that guy's like, he put Colin Farrell made him look totally different. He did the, um, I think in the deleted scene commentary, we find out he did the Joker makeup. So that guy definitely, he's like the unsung MVP of the whole movie. And in the, that part, I liked when, um, once all the makeup was on and someone had like a camera phone on Colin Farrell, he started playing around like the, uh, as the penguin He's like, are you talking to me? Like, what are you looking at me for? He's doing, uh, his penguin impression kind of got right into character. I like that too. Cause I feel like, you know, as they develop the TV show, whatever they do with like the future of the franchise, I, it, all signs point to Colin Farrell being game to like continue this. Yeah, so. he's, ha- he's having a blast. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the Joker deleted scene and moving on to the deleted scenes, there are two um, and they each have commentary and like the Joker scene we've, we've talked about in a previous episode, but I did, you know, watch it again. And then I watched the commentary with it. And I found the, I found the com- commentary fascinating, you know, to see kind of an insight on, you know, where their heads were at and, you know, creating this, you know, and like the big note I have is, you know, Batman and the character who would be the Joker, and they wanted to specify that he's not the Joker yet, but eventually, like everybody else, he's still finding himself and figuring himself out, and he's a very much like a proto-Joker. Um, you know, the backstory unspoken in here is that they had a connection, Batman and Joker, in Batman's first year, you know, and so they've already met, and they have this relationship, you know, as you can tell by the deleted scenes that hints at that, you know, but as these movies develop and this world develops, this character will eventually become the Joker. And one of the traits he has is since he kind of has this, you know, disease or deformity, you know, that has marked him from childhood, you know, he's used to look uh, people looking at him funny because of his condition. And so, you know, as Reeves kind of explains it, he has an insidious insight into how, people think or feel and that's how he's able to like tinker and break people apart and psychologically torment them so i thought that was really fascinating yeah and the the one thing i will say is even if you've already seen the scene and you have no desire to to watch it with the commentary watch the scene over again on the release because there is some differences in the audio and the lighting of the scene than the version that was released on youtube not anything super major, but you can hear the dialogue a little bit more clearly in in this. And I feel like it was just mixed better for this. It was almost as if they, because they had no intention of ever releasing the other clip, maybe on YouTube initially, and it was going to always be made for that. Maybe they were rushing to try to get it together to be able to release it as part of like the after marketing once the film released. And which is fine, but 
the the version that's that releases with the home video it just it sounds so much better and it's it's worth just to watch for that by itself i liked in the commentary when um matt reeves was saying how um, deep down uh batman thinks what the riddle is doing is like he's right in the sense that these guys need justice but he just doesn't like the way that they go about it and he kind of won't admit it to himself just his conversation with the joker like joker brings it out and that's when kind of batman starts to like freak out and kind of back away and like kind of see joker calls it that um batman thinks riddle is right because the joker is smart right he's just as smart as batman if not smarter and um i liked how that scene in that one scene we kind of got like what the what their little relationship yeah it was really clever you know and it's it's so much thought put into it um the other scene we had which was new i'll break it down real quickly before we get reactions but it was an iceberg lounge scene where um it it comes in the film ahead of uh selena going down into the 44 below with the contact lenses and scoping out you know the players downstairs for batman um and so it's it's how she gets down there basically so she goes to the penguin and she asks to work downstairs you know and he tells her no he doesn't want her downstairs because it's dangerous but you know selena says well she wants the money you know and and so she wants to work there but you know penguin is so obstinate against this idea that he offers to give her money you know which she refuses and then penguin gets kind of you know sad and 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 rejected and you know asks if he's not good enough for her you know and then you know, in the turn of a dime, he also, like, low-key issues a threat that, you know, Carmine Falcone won't be around forever and that one day the city is going to be his. Uh, what did you guys think of that scene? I thought it was great. Um, I, I can understand why they cut it because they were – this happens a little bit too early in the film to kind of have you have any sort of sympathy towards Penguin. Um, but it does – do a great job of setting it up is like he knows that he's just baiting his time to or biding his time until Falcone is gone and then he's going to make his move um it does show his compassionate side too where he's like trying to get her to not go down there and things like that and that's great um it, it was it's interesting because going into this scene i thought it was going to be more focused on catwoman and honestly coming out of it it really just feels like it's doing something for the penguin i agree with the fact that they cut it um but at the same time it's nice to see that they had some ideas of how to make the penguin a little bit uh more, more, a little bit softer before the the you know before everything else that went down but it makes so much more sense to not have him be soft before like the giant car chase in that the final shot was really good whereas it was batman looking at uh, through his little computer through the contact lens that selena has and it's just a close-up of anyone saying how he's going to own this city one day you just know that they're going to be headed in for they're going to be button heads for years to come yeah no that was really cool and i like that you know in the commentary of the track you know they mentioned that you know of course like this is where penguins showing some vulnerability but um since selena knows batman is watching you know that's why she reacts the way she does and like she may have softened the blow you know were he not watching is kind of the, the the suggestion or hint they're getting at you know and then obviously penguin misinterprets her response as rejection even though you know that is not her intention necessarily 
so I thought that was really cool and very complicated, you know, and, and it does go back to the whole Fredo Corleone thing that Matt Reeves mentioned earlier in the Penguin section um, of the special features. All right. And with that, that is all the special features. Um, definitely, if you haven't picked up the home video version, do it because there's a lot of really good stuff here. One thing that I will find, I, I'll, I'll wrap this all up with, it was abundantly clear that Matt Reeves is enjoying every second of his time on this on this film. Um, Robert Pattinson, the same thing. The, these, you can tell that they are like, there was something that I noticed, and I, w- I didn't have time to go back and watch some of this, like uh, watch a special feature. But I remember watching some special features for Batman Begins and maybe The Dark Knight with Chris Nolan talking about Batman, and like there's a there was there was definitely a level of passion that that Nolan had for those films. But Matt Reeves's passion is so much higher, and you can hear it in his voice whenever he's talking about the variety of different things that whatever the topic is we're trying to figure out this wingsuit you know we were thinking about what to do with the batmobile this is what i was thinking for catwoman this is what i was thinking you know when we were coming up with the ideas for penguin his passion for this project just it reverberates across the entire crew because the crew always is, gets really motivated by the director and things like that and it's just really cool to see that and i can see as long as he has plenty of things to say he's going to stay in this universe and he's going to continue to say them because and it explains why he you know he's producing or he's going to be a producer on the potential other spin-off shows outside of the penguin and this other one that's going to be doing Arkham or GCP or whatever it ends up being um, and it explains why he also is attached to the animated Batman series that they're currently making because even outside of his own stuff that he's doing he's truly a fan of the character and that's why he wants to be involved with this stuff so it's great to see that all right so with all of that that is going to wrap up this episode of the TBU podcast um, if you guys are looking for a way to purchase this, be sure to use our affiliate link in the description because that does help the podcast as well as the website out. Um, outside of that, you can head over to our website, thebatmuniverse.net, for all kinds of news, original content, other podcasts related to the movies, television, video games, merchandise comics and everything else in the bat fandom um you can follow us on twitter facebook you uh instagram discord um we're all over the place all of our social links can be found at the top of the page over at the batmanuniverse.net if you have something you'd like us to discuss on a future episode be sure to leave a comment wherever you are listening to this and or you can send us an email at tbu at the batmanuniverse.net with any uh, uh not only comments, but also things that, uh, suggestions for future episodes as well. In addition to that, um, if you are interested in supporting us in other ways, whether it be monetarily or supporting us, uh, specifically, like if you want to become a patron on our Patreon, um, you can get actual early unedited versions of these podcasts, um, right after we actually we record them and before they release to the public. That is one of the perks on Patreon. Um, Outside of that, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, Again, for BJ, Scott, and myself, thank you so much for listening to the TBU podcast, and we will see you guys next time. 